0: Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight Three Hundred and Sixty Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, we are at episode one hundred and twenty-seven of the Freight Three Hundred and Sixty Podcast. I'm uh, I'm coming at you from Florida just like you this week, Ben, but I'm on the other side of the state. So I'm over here in Siesta Key near like Clearwater. I gotta tell you, man, it's nice and it's warm and it's a good change of of pace, although I'm pretty sunburnt already. So if anyone's watching on YouTube, that's why my face and my red shirt look the same color. But uh, yeah, man, how you doing? Beautiful beaches over there, man. Like literally some of the most beautiful in the world. The sand is so white and it's so soft, it's awesome. So Fluffy hey, today's uh, today's episode is going to be all about intermodal. We've had a lot of questions come in um, through our website and our contact forms and all that. So we're going to talk a little bit about dredge, a little bit about the ports and um, just using rail companies and co-brokers with them and all that good stuff. Um, so that's what you have to look forward to today. But first, if you're brand new here, we're glad you found us. Make sure to leave us a review on <laughs> iTunes or wherever you're listening and share us with your friends in the industry. So, uh, I know we're ranking pretty good right now. A little sports recap here. By the way, did you see the comment on YouTube about our sports banter? I did, said it was <laughs> a little bit long <laughs> kind of like 12 minutes. He's like, it's too long, cut to the chase. So, my feedback to you, sir or ma'am, is uh, just fast forward. It's the same thing I do with the first
1: five minutes of the Tim Ferriss Show every week. He's got six minutes of commercials before they start. I start every
0: podcast at 6.05. Yep. There you go. There you have it. Um, quick sports recap, though. The Super Bowl happened, and I just want to say that my predictions, they uh, the, my betting predictions, they carried, right? So I had the plus four and a half for Cincinnati to cover, which they did, and the under, which it was underneath forty eight and a half. and a half so the bengal's did not win it was what 23-20 la at home so i was pulling for them i mean yeah. i they
1: i really thought they should have won i mean I, they had it in the bag man literally they had that in the game bag. in the bag what a minute and 38 or something like they had yep. it and i i mean again i grew up afc i grew up as a rival of the bengal's and the browns and the you know the ravens but yeah. clearly you want to see them win over. I mean just me, like I really was pulling for them. I wanted to see the upset. Thought it would have been pretty cool for Cincinnati to get a Super Bowl. I mean
0: it is what it is, man. It's it is what it is. So now everyone is back to a fresh start getting ready for the 2022 season. Um I did see the the way too early predictions for 2022's Super Bowl <laughs> and it had the Bills and the Chiefs as the as the favorites. So yeah. I it's think of, rosters at like three to one odds or something like that or seven to one. I don't know. Whatever it was. Way too early though. You have no idea who's gonna draft who, who will get traded, all that stuff. So we'll see. Yep. All right. So let's uh let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT and then we'll get into some intermodal talk here. Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT load board
1: network is the largest. On-demand freight marketplace in North America. Connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners and quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. With the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. And if you want to support the show and get a free month of DAT Power, Express, or Trucker's Edge, if you are signed up for DAT, we would appreciate the support. Use one of these links. We get a credit. We obviously, you know, do a lot of work with DAT. This helps us out. So, if you're a fan of the show and you don't and you haven't signed up for it, would appreciate
0: you using the link. Absolutely. That goes for any affiliate too. So, if you're if you're curious about software, TMS, anything, right? Load boards. Just go to the affiliate section of our website. There's a link in the show notes, like Ben, that you just said. Support your boys. So there you go, four minutes and 30 seconds, and we were able to get through our intro, our banter, sports, and our first ad. But I do want to plug
1: our Facebook page. If anybody out there hasn't been following yet, I mean, we're putting a lot of educational content out there, and the team at Lean that is doing all of it for us is really putting out some great stuff. So they're taking (coughs) some of our longer-form videos, some of the long-form podcasts, and then turning into like bite-sized tips, minute and a half, yeah. two minute videos. So if you are a fan of the show and our site and you just want some more content, we're putting a ton out on Facebook. Um, and check out our Facebook, our group, Freight Brokers and Carriers Network, because we are yeah. putting a lot more free resources out in all of these areas, engage in them, that's what they're for.
0: I will tell you that. So the, um, obviously, yeah, so two different things, right? The Freight 360 page is where you'll find a lot of our content, but the Freight Brokers and Carriers uh, group is where you'll be able to coordinate and um, connect with you know different carriers and brokers out there depending on what role you are in the industry. I've seen a lot of really good stuff and people connecting on there lately, and I'm super happy to see it. I think we're up to almost 30,000 members in there, but I'm seeing brokers connecting with dispatchers and carriers on a lot of their dedicated lanes that they have, and um, carriers out there looking for brokers to connect with. It's good stuff, and that's what we want it for. And I'm yeah. I'm deleting a ton of um, spammy cryptocurrency stuff on a daily basis. <laughs> so, Hey, it, it comes with the territory, I guess. So good stuff. All right, let's talk drayage or we'll, we'll talk intermodal in general, right? So when we talk about intermodal, let's let's first define what it is. So the traditional full truckload is just one mode of transportation, right? It's a truck the term intermodal means more than one mode of transportation, okay? So if we talk about rail, um, for example, the way that rail works is it has to be picked up on a truck and then be taken to a rail site and then offloaded onto a truck and delivered, right? In a nutshell, that's like the, you know, we call that door to door, rail service and that's intermodal it uses two different modes of transportation Um, we're going to talk a little bit about drayage and ports and rail yards and just kind of how they're a little bit different from uh, your traditional point to point full truckload. And Ben, you're, you're kind of, I would call you the resident expert in the drayage rollout out of the two of us because you've got a lot more experience and exposure to it than I do. Um, so why don't you, let me ask you a question here. When it comes to intermodal, if someone's interested in getting involved in, let's say, you know, any kind of um, port or rail yard or drayage type of work, what, you know, how would you caution them or, Just give them a little bit of a a heads up or an idea of what it's like and what it is. Well,
1: there's some major differences with full truckload. The first major difference is in drayage, if you accept a load, specifically an import, or you're handling any of them, you are actually incurring liability. So like if things go wrong, you are responsible for them. So for instance, in full truckload, you commit to a load, your truck doesn't show up, they fall out on you, right? Your customer is gonna be upset, you're gonna try to go try to recover it, but there is no money changes hands. Like your customer does not pay you, you do not pay them for your mistake, right? Now in drayage, if you commit to pick up an import, we'll say, which is a container coming into the country, right? So if you're gonna go yep. pick up a container, there is a certain time frame that it can sit on there before it starts incurring charges. Now that's called demurrage and that's the liability you're accepting responsibility for when you are taking a drage load.
0: So let me ask you this with demurrage. Are we looking at this as in, hey, you agreed, I'll just make up a, a date. Like, let's say I have five days from today. Um, so is it basically my fault because I failed to secure a truck to get that container moved? Is that why they look at it that way?
1: It is, and there's costs for everything in dredge. So for instance, like the container can sit in the port or at a rail terminal, right? Wherever you're draying it out of, it doesn't necessarily need to be a port because sometimes the containers are coming in on railroads and you might be draying it out of like a Memphis terminal in the middle of the country. It operates the same as like a port, except you need a TWIC card for a driver to port, but, and we can talk about that in a second. What I just wanna talk about is the cost, right? So once that container either gets off the train or off the boat, it is grounded. That starts the clock. That clock is free time. So you will have a predetermined amount of time before that container starts costing money to the BCO, beneficial cargo owner, whoever that is, right? The person tendering the load. So on the carrier side, right, you accept liability when you take that load. So for instance, if you say I'm going to get this load out by the last free day and it doesn't, the customer usually makes the carrier pay that storage fee that day and they go up over time they do not get smaller so it might be 180 the first day and then it's 200 the second day it's 250 the fourth day and then it's 275 they're different based on the railroad line and they're different based on the port and they're different based on the time Um, but they all incur a cost and there's always that liability now I'll give you a little caveat. So let's say you have a new customer and you you know, say, hey, I'll go get these five containers. Let's say you don't get any of them that week and you forget to tell them. Your customer, you technically aren't going to be legally responsible to pay the storage to get the containers out, but you are responsible to pay it to get them out if you want to still move the load and if you ever want to work with that customer again. Because <laughs> again, let's yes. say you had five units today and you didn't get any of them picked up. Tomorrow morning, there is a $1,000 bill that will need paid 200 per unit to get any of them out. And what's gonna happen is your customer's gonna go, well, why didn't they get out? We're not paying this, you committed to it. And then you're gonna go, well, I either forgot, I couldn't, whatever your excuse is, right? And then that's where the liability really changes hands. So it's like common practice that you are responsible for these charges if you wanna operate in the industry.
0: So I want to I want to just make this very clear because some people might wonder like well why are they going to charge and here's the reason <clears> right <throat> and this goes with any kind of um, it's the same thing goes with detention for a driver right a there's a finite number of containers and a finite amount of space in a port or a rail yard right yep. so the longer these assets and these storage facilities are being used up inefficiently it takes away from the rest of the, um, you know, the rest of the freight that has to get moved. The same thing goes with the driver who's laid over or held at a facility for, you know, 12 hours, or whatever the case might be. That driver, he or she is not able to be used to go haul other freight. That's why we have things like demerge and detention. They're two different things, but they, the concept stays is, uh, you know, it's the same for both of them. And think
1: about it, It's Demerge is charged by the people that own the ground, the parking lots around the railroads and the ports, right? And I'm sure everybody out there, if you've been following the news or you've seen any of it, you saw pictures of the LA port during the pandemic and there's just massive amounts of ships anchored off the ocean, right, in the Pacific. Well, it's because that finite amount of resources how many containers can actually sit in a parking lot was filled. And then you started seeing things in LA where they're like, we'll just stack them higher. And then you saw the unions go, we can't because it's a safety hazard and we have a lot of winds. And if the winds blow a stack of four units high over, like it's not, it's like a lethal safety hazard, right? So there was a lot of discussion over, how these companies can charge it, whether it was ethical to, what you're going to do, because a lot of the, the situations around intermodal and drayage, just getting products into our country weren't the fault of the people moving them, right? And But yet they were still paying the bill and that's causing a lot of increased shipping costs, a lot of inflation because the railroads weren't exactly predictable. They were dumping them. They were saying, hey, it's." it got really messy. We'll leave it at that. I mean, we'd have... 3 hours to have power
0: so that's interesting the the stack like how how high you can stack them i didn't know that so my uh one of my first exposures to containers was in the in the military. Um, just about every base overseas and in the United States as well has a like a container storage yard where either stuff is being stored or it's getting ready to be loaded or unloaded, whatever the case might be. And I remember seeing in the Middle East like eight, ten high of containers. Um, some of them were full, some of them were empty, whatever. But they're just, you know, it's like a metropolis of containers but we didn't have the wind issues there like you're going to have coming uh, off the pacific into like the port of valley and whatnot so that's interesting i would imagine each location probably has their own safety standards based on that location right yeah and
1: it's it's with the unions and all of it and then it's negotiated out with osha i'm sure to some degree you know occupational safety and hazard association whatnot um but kind of on the same topic topic i want to i want to explain the other end because that's the import side right so if you're going to move a drage load you need one of two questions answered right out of the gate is it an import or is it an export right Import product coming into the country, export product going out of the country, right? So the other charge incurred by carriers and brokers, as it relates to doing an intermodal load, it's called per diem, which is Latin for per day. And what that is, is the charge that the steamship lines, those are the big shipping companies, Maersk, MSC, CMA, CGM, right? They And the ones you see on the back of trucks with their name printed right on the side, you know, CMAs are green, Maersk's are blue, MSC's are yellow, right? Like, everyone's seen one driving down the road. Those containers, right, the largest cost for the shipping lines are two things. Oil for the the vessels to get them across the ocean. The second highest cost is shipping empty containers around. In fact, those vessels move more empty containers than they move full containers at any given time in the country. And the other interesting thing is not only that, but the biggest expense are these empty containers sitting around not getting back into circulation. So for instance, say you picked up an import, you run it out to your facility, you deliver the cargo inside it, right? But let's say it's a drop load, which is common in drayage. These guys only move short distances. Typically within 75 or 100 miles, 90% of the drayage runs are. You will see a very small percentage go above 100 miles, some that are 170 and 200. Those are the ones brokers usually see. And why is that? Because they're the ones the carriers don't really want to run. They go, I'll take all the local stuff because they want to stay close to home. Like they're running like shuttle runs, basically, back and forth. It's all volume, right? So this stuff that's 200 miles, again, they don't drive sleeper cabs. They don't have the equipment that's built to run that way. And they make more money pulling a lot of units, not necessarily on the per mile side, right? Yep. So again, let's say you drop this container at your facility. You brought some imports in. And you left it there, and they say, Hey, I'll call you when this is empty. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. This was done a lot during the Christmas season because companies couldn't predict when their inventory was coming in. So, what they did was order things way in advance. So, I had loads for Macy's, um, you know, the big department store, that we were dropping in their parking lot in September that they weren't opening until like the week before Christmas because they didn't have space in their warehouse. They're literally using this container as outside storage, right? Yeah, it's inventory. Wow. Well, the shipping companies know that and that's very common with some larger companies and we could talk about why, but the reality is is, so they put a they put a bill on that, right? So we dropped this unit in September, it's anywhere and it's different for every steamship line, but a good round number is like 150 to 200 a day. It sat there for three months. So Macy's was like, look, we don't have the space. We know this is what we're paying. They paid 150 to $200 per day on that container sitting on their property so that they could have the inventory when they needed it. Well, guess what? Like That bill is getting paid by somebody. And that was done intentional. What you see oftentimes by brokers is they handle the first part. I got the import picked up. I made sure the product got to the customer. But they forget to call to the carrier and say, did you pick that empty up and gate it back in? Because guess what? If they forget it there for a week, they're getting a bill. And here's the whole thing and what r- runs behind the scenes is a carrier in drayage. And what is very different than full truckload is you need to be a member of the UIIA. Okay. Which is, and I should know
0: Uniform this. intermodal and interchange agreement.
1: And what that is, is a, it's a company, honestly, and, and I think they're in Baltimore, Maryland. And yep. what they do is... Fredericksburg. Yep. Every single steamship line, every one of these big vessel-owning companies, and every railroad uploads their legal agreements with the UIA. And then every carrier that picks up any drayage load anywhere has to be a member of the UIIA. And what that organization does is it governs all the rules and regulations and all the liabilities for all of these things. Because the reality is, is you're picking up a container owned by somebody else. And you're using a chassis, usually owned by someone else. And you're going on property owned by someone else. And all of these things have liabilities. So why you need to make sure your carrier is UI certified or part of the organization is, they won't be able to get the container. They will not give it to them. They will not give them a chassis and they cannot run the load. Like the system won't
0: allow it to happen. I've seen a a lot of folks that are not set up with the UIA and they end up finding out that the driver gets rejected, right? Because they're not, they're not part of that organization.
1: So common practice, if you're thinking about running a drage load, first, you need to make sure you've got a list of carriers that are UIA members. You can purchase that list directly through the UIA. I think it's like 1200 bucks and it's comprehensive. It's literally every drage carrier in the country. Okay, the second thing is if you're ever going to book a carrier on a drayage load, you need to know the railroad and the steamship line or the port because you need to verify this carrier is authorized for that. You might have a carrier that can run MSC containers and Maersk containers, but not CMA. They might be able to run Turcon, but not Hapag Lloyd. So and the only way to know that for sure is it's in the UIA. Like you can literally get visibility into it. You can see it. The problem you run into as a brokerage is most brokers are non-asset brokers. You are not going to be able to be a member of the UIA as a brokerage.
0: Your carrier- I do think they're trying to change that though because they what they've come to realize is that The reality of this situation is that there's brokers that will use an asset authority and still broker out under that asset authority. And the UI knows that. And some of the big players have approached them saying, look, you need there's a value in using brokers. It's going to give you access to more of the marketplace. As long as you can allow brokers to get a like a broker only um, annual membership to them or whatnot, they think it's going to solve a lot of problems. I don't know if that's happened yet, but it has not. And I'll tell you why the last company I was with, and the current one, they made us set up as a broker using our asset authority.
1: And here's where I'm at. I'm literally at this right now with one of my customers is in order for us to do EDI with them for invoicing and for tendering, it's done through the UIA. And they're literally not able to put us in the electronic system because the brokerage that I run my customers through does not have assets. So what we have to do is like, individually invoice everything and do it all manually because you know like that's the procurement requirements you know nate and i talk about this a lot this is really where you run into needing to understand your shippers and your loads procurement requirements and the carrier side because all at the end of the day as a broker all we're doing is taking all the rules and everything our customer has and applying it to the other side. We're not creating rules. We're not really doing anything original. We're just asking them what they need us to enforce and then applying it over here, right?
0: Yep, exactly. Good stuff. So I think the the UIIA membership, it's something like uh, 500 bucks a year or something like that. I forget the exact amount, but um, it's an annual membership. The the first time you set it up is a lot of paperwork. And like you said, Ben, um, each individual Steamship line, right, or container company if you want to call them that, Um, they have individual addendums and contracts that you may or may not have to fill out and um, sign off on and they have their own insurance requirements and stuff like that, so based on who your customer is, you'll have to make sure that you fill out their specific paperwork and it's all done within the UIA's website. I think it's org, it if i remember correctly.
1: Now technically as a broker you can become a member of IANA, which is the body yep. over UIAA, but to be honest, there's not a lot of like actual resources that you get to use on a daily basis. Right. To be honest, yep. I mean the two things you really need is somewhat of an understanding and you need the UIA list because the UIA list has all the carriers in it and that's where you're going to start working through to find capacity. Um
0: yep exactly so let's talk i want to talk rail a little bit yep. as far as offering rail solutions to customers so unless you have anything else on the drayage side or no ports. i mean i
1: think some of the other stuff that's important and we can talk about it after because drayage is the same thing as pulling it out of a port versus pulling out of a rail um it's like the catch-all that really kind of talks about intermodal some of the other things to note is that like Rates are not done in the spot market the same way that they are in drayage. In drayage, these guys, remember, they, they start and end their day in the same place. They live there the same place, right? So rates do not fluctuate on a daily basis the way they do in other markets. It does not have a ebb and flow of supply and demand. In fact, there's a finite amount of carriers there every day all of the time. What changes is the load volume and the friction in the system, Right. Yep. An example, a snowstorm blows through New Jersey. All of a sudden, brokers get a lot of loads for the next two weeks because it backs up everybody's things. Because here, the way drayage is very predictable, like all of the companies that tender it, whether it's a freight forwarder, a shipper, a shipping line, a railroad, they all know what's coming in before it comes in. So it's a very predictable type of transportation, not the same as full truckload. And what happens with predictable? You have more predictable and stable rates so when you're doing rates for a customer expect them to be more based on volume less based on urgency because few and far between is it urgent they should know long before and if they're giving you a load on lfd which means the last free day to pick it up it's because the carrier that they told them they were going to pick it up didn't And isn't going to, and they're about to start paying $200 a day until it does get picked up. So if you or a broker want to know how much you can charge to make a load, if your customer's giving you a bunch of stuff on LFD, you can literally charge them an extra $200 if you can get it out before the other guy can, right? Because if their existing carriers can't get it for four days, that's an extra $800 that shipper pays, right? If I can get it out in two days, I'm already $400 cheaper than the other guy. So I can charge two or $300 more than my carrier would need to run it and save my customer money. So there's a lot of opportunity in how you price it and how you move it. But again, you've gotta know the difference between like in full truckload, we talk about rate versus date, right? Do I have five days to move it or does it need move today? That's really your discrepancy. In drayage, it's more on volume. If you're gonna give me containers, I care much more about how many you're gonna give me. Because once you go start calling through the UIA to find carriers, what these guys want the most is they want volume. They don't wanna run one load for you and then find another one tomorrow. They wanna work with a broker that's got like five a week, five a day, 50 a week, Whatever it is, they want to add that into their roster, find a driver to connect with it, and have him do that over and over again, right? So it's a very different type of business model than you see in full truckload. It's consistency. And when you're
0: not spending time worrying about where your next load is coming from, you're a lot more willing to do that.
1: And it works way more like I always feel like it's more like construction, like these guys get up and go to work every day. So you organize your workers every day and go, okay, who wants what work? Right. And then we get it out to them. We go out. okay, who got what work for next week? And then you distribute it. Now, you have issues to deal with all day, like getting rail billing done, getting things picked up, things that change. But you're not scrambling to find trucks and you're not fielding
0: large numbers of influx of calls. Yep, for sure. Oh, good stuff, man. Good stuff. Um, so let's. I want to shift here, and I want to touch on rail a little bit as a solution for your customer. So the, I would say I've personally seen it in like the last five years or so that folks have looked at rail as an option um, because if, if they have freight that's not as time sensitive and it's it's cost sensitive, depending on what lane it's in, a, putting it on a train or on rail may be a more A better option or solution for the customer Um, so here you know think about it this way right if a truck if a shipment needs to go from the East Coast to the West Coast and it's got to get there in you know let's say this week right you're gonna either have to put it on a full truckload that has a team drivers or a solo driver that can get there um, and they have the hours to do it but let's say you know let's say it's got a couple of weeks you know, two three weeks to get there right rail is not as uh, you know you can't guarantee the exact day that it's gonna get there necessarily because you got to have a truck that's gonna pick it up take it to the rail yard it's got to be scheduled they have to have space on the actual the rail car to get it across the country and then unloaded and delivered um, so rail depending like I said depending on the lane can be uh, more cost efficient but it takes more time to get there and we have seen an uptick in double brokering where the 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 broker that double brokers throws it on a rail and it gets there like two weeks later or whatnot. And then it gets all uncovered. and It's a mess. Uh, so so the transparency thing is huge. And
1: I want to slow down because I think for a lot of people that this concept is new to, I want us to talk a little bit about like what this really is. Right. And, and kind of reiterate some of the stuff you just said. So normally, like you said, you see these on much longer runs and what rail really is is you're really going to transload this right. Usually into a container or load it directly into a container and then it's gonna get on a train and then it'll arrive on the other side of the country, a drayage driver will usually grab that container and take it to your facility, right? So you have usually three modes of transportation if you're gonna put it on a train, right? You gotta pick it up, get it to the train and then they call it rubber rail rubber, right? So it's going from a truck, yep. to the, the railroad back to the truck again. Now, sometimes you can use a flat rack car where you can literally put like, and you maybe you see this on a train, like literally the tractor trailer gets put on they top call of a train piggyback.
0: car. They Yep. yep exactly
1: now what you're referring to right is usually the longer it takes the cheaper it is right and a train's using way less gas and resources than every individual truck right so usually usually you get a cheaper rate so what Nate's referring to is let's say you're at a big brokerage right like I don't know say you're at like CH Robinson and you thought you booked it with a, a truck right well that truck let's say also has their brokerage you know authority they told you it's on a truck But then instead of putting on a truck, they throw it on a train because they make an extra $2,000 and they just hope that you don't notice it's going to be there four days late. And then what (laughs) happens is, is you go start getting updates and they're like, yeah, this guy's broken down. Uh, He'll he'll be up and running tomorrow. Ah, the guy's in the mechanic. And you're like, none of this seems to like pass the sniff test. Doesn't make sense, right? Right. This is what's happening behind the scenes is they're just making a whole lot of money and hoping you don't care. It
0: gets there four more days later. And some people, they get by with it, and they don't get caught, yep. but eventually, most people do. Um, the repeat offenders. Now, I wanna talk about, um, and this is something that I've set up and I've done with on the brokerage side, is these door-to-door service rail brokerages. Okay, so you think about the two big rail companies, CSX and Union Pacific, right? Each of them has their own rail brokerage within their company, so, Unit Pacifics is called Loop, L-O-U-P, and CSX is called Ship CSX. And what you can do is if you set up with them, you can go to them for quotes on door-to-door rail service. And what they'll do is they will use, obviously, their own rail, portion but they will ensure that they hire the 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 rubber on both sides of it like you called it right so the dredge move to get it to the port or i'm sorry to the rail yard and from the other end of the rail yard deliver it to its found destination um what's cool about that is it's very very transparent and um you know you, you get Usually within a week, their pricing will maintain stable. But you can't get a quote for like next month because they have no idea what the volume of shipments mm-hmm. going to look like um, in their rail network. So um, check those out, Loop and Ship CSX if you're looking for a a, a rail brokerage solution for your customers. The biggest tip that I want to give you though is. Make sure you're transparent with your customer, and make sure they're okay with it going on rail and having potential delays and things like that. If it's time-sensitive freight, not, not going to be a good. You know, yeah. not not a good option for you. So, but it is a cost saver and a solution that you can bring to a potential option to bring to your customers if they're interested in it. Yep. Now, something that I, I do want to talk about um, claims and liability on that. I just went through this setup process in the last week or two um, with Loop. Is you always want to wonder, when you're in a co-brokerage situation, how do claims work, right? If there's a if there's an issue with the shipment, who's gonna handle it, right? Um, so in most rail brokerage situations, if there's a derailment, or the truck that was hired by them gets in an accident, yes, they are gonna handle that claim, and they'll get it all settled for you. But if it's something with you know, when it was loaded at the shipper or damaged by the receiver unloading it, they're not gonna touch that claim. You are still responsible as broker A in that relationship to file that claim with the proper insurance company. So just things to think about that people often overlook when they're setting up a new solution like that.
1: They are. <clears throat> and I think also what'll be helpful is like, I'm gonna walk through like what happens on an import and an export, right? At least from a high level so that, I mean, yep. cause we get this question a lot. So first is, An import, right? So the import, you know usually before it's coming in. What you are gonna have with an import shipment that you need to pick it up. You need to know where you're picking it up from. So whether it's a railroad terminal or a port, you need that obviously. But you also need to know, like to your point, like which railroad? Is it Union Pacific? Is it CSX? Is it um, BNSF? Is it Canadian National, right? Which one of the railroads are you picking it up from? Because again, you need to convey this to the carrier you're gonna book. You need to make sure they're able and authorized to pick up from there, first thing. The second thing you're gonna need is you're gonna have a booking number, you're gonna have a container number, and you're gonna have a pickup number. You're also going to have a PO for the facility for an import, right? So in order for your driver to get that from the terminal or the port, they go in with the booking number, the container number, and the pickup number. That gets them the container. The fourth number, which is on the delivery order, is the PO. That's for the facility you're taking the import to. So your driver will usually go and get a chassis from a chassis pool, then take this information, go over and grab the import, gate it out, drive it to the facility, empty the cargo, then gate the container back in. What you're responsible for is tracking when that container arrives in the window to LFD as a broker. Once you know that, you make sure you redispatch to the carrier, let them know you've gotta get it out by this day, schedule the appointment if necessary, make sure the container's returned. That's the long and short of it.
0: Yeah, and I wanna point out here, because I've dealt with a lot of agents that have worked in either the container movement business, uh, chassis repositioning, anything that involves a lot of different numbers like that. And this is where it's very crucial for you and your team if you're, if you're working with other folks in your industry or your organization make sure you're tracking this stuff properly in your TMS and that everybody that needs to have access to it potentially has access yes. to it. Cause I've had, I've seen people that like, they have permissions set on their employees where they can only see certain fields. And then they realize I couldn't see the chassis number or the container number or the booking number or whatever it was. So that stuff is huge.
1: So other important things, not only do you need all this documented, right? But accessorials are what really runs the drayage business In full truckload you might have like an extra pay for like a layover or detention but for the most part you got line haul and maybe fuel In drayage you have a lot of different charges you can pay a pre pull charge which means if the receiver can't take the import but you've got to get it out of the yard before it starts incurring to merge, You charge for that fee, usually 150, have your carrier take it to his yard and then re-deliver it back out. Again, another charge, pre-pool re-delivery. Now let's say your driver has to get a chassis at one particular rail yard and the place your container's coming out of doesn't have that chassis. Now you're paying what is called a chassis split. That is another fee. That's because the driver had to make two stops to get the container out, right? Same thing happens when they go to return them. So there are a lot of little line items that you should familiarize yourself with before you're starting to do this, and you should certainly know what your carrier is going to charge you and accessorials so you can notify your customer. There's nothing worse than giving the line haul rate to your customer and then you get a bill from your carrier that has four additional charges that are the same amount and you realize you lost money on it
0: because you just didn't yeah. give them the right information. This is, this is exactly why if you're gonna enter any kind of new niche or market in freight brokerage, you've gotta learn it from someone that's already doing it and succeeding at it. Otherwise you're just, you're, you're it's shooting expensive. in the
1: dark. It's an expensive <laughs> lesson to learn. Um, it is. So that's the import, right? Here's the here's the fundamentals of an export. Pretty simple, right? The cargo is leaving the country, right? But what you have if you're going to book an export shipment is you don't have the container number. You only have the booking number. And what that booking number is, is that is the slot that is already booked on the train. But again, nobody knows what container is going to be used because your driver is going to take that booking number He's gonna go grab a chassis and go to a container depot, not a railroad for an export. The container depot is just a big yard, just like you described, with lots and lots of units stacked on each other. And why they're stacked higher is because they're stacked next to each other and it doesn't matter where they pull them out of. So they can basically make a big block of them and there's just a ton of them there. And they just grab them out of the front and give them to the driver. So what that means is your driver will be calling you and saying, this is the container I will be taking to your customer. That's where you get the container number. Now the driver takes the empty container to the shipper, they stuff the container, load it, seal it, and weigh it. Now what you've gotta do in order to take that container into a railroad is what is a process called rail billing. Your carrier should know how to do this but every single steamship line and railroad has a different process. So you like actually need to know who the people are you email to get the container rail build. Your shipper or whoever tenders the load should be able to tell you this because that's when after your guy loads, your driver loads, you need the seal number, the weight, the container number, the booking number, and usually the piece count. You email that usually to the steamship line, they book the reservation on the train, which then notifies the shipping line when they will receive the container from the train, right? Because it's eventually going on a boat and leaving. But where that boat leaves the continent of North America is determined at that point in time. That's what rail billing is. Think of it like when you book a flight, you've got a flight number and a seat. The flight number is like the booking number. Um, Your seat is like the container number. A container number is unique. You will not see another one like it. A booking number could have one container. It could have 10 containers. Um, There's not really a limit. It's the space of the group that they're getting together, right? But that's really the process. So now you take the loaded container, you gate it in, and now you got to return the chassis.
0: I like that. The import-export 101 process. That's good. All right. Um, So we've got a couple Q&A questions here. And actually, one of them is about in and out of uh, Mexico, so we'll get there in a second. But our first question is How can I hire a sales team overseas or outside of the US? Um, I want to preface by saying that you absolutely can do this. I know that wasn't part of the question, but some people often wonder Can I have someone that's not in the US if they're, you know, working for a US based freight brokerage? Absolutely, right? That's why companies like Lean exist um, and have helped brokerages scale immensely. Um, how does it work? So, I mean, it's just like hiring anybody else. The The main thing here to remember is that you or your brokerage is the licensed entity and whenever it comes to billing or anything like that, you have to make sure that they're always referencing your company and your address, your MC, all that stuff. Um, now, another thing to caution here is there are certain software platforms and plugins that may have, um, it may like, flag location errors and things like that. I've seen, like for example, Truck Stop for load boards. Um, I've had agents that had employees that were out of the country or whatever the case might be, and they couldn't get access to their load boards or some pieces of software because it was blocked by um, the developer or whatever the case is. So just make sure that you're aware of all the tools you're using, that your phone systems are set up properly, that they can communicate using US-based area codes and phone numbers and things like that. Um, but I guess the, the the big reason people ask this is there's a there's a benefit in um, reducing your labor costs, right? And it's not that you're hiring indentured servants or slaves or anything like that. It's just that the cost of living is cheaper in a lot of other countries, which allows them to um, you know offer work and assistance to brokerage companies at a cheaper rate. Um, so that's you know we we've seen them pop up in. Um, Europe, so like Eastern Europe, for example, I know Ukraine's got a big presence of it, Um, obviously down in Colombia, South America, Um, but yeah, just couple of things to look at there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, same thing. I mean, anytime
1: you can reduce a fixed cost or, I mean, technically a very, I mean, like you're paying staff and you're able to get the same quality of person at a lower price. I mean, there's some definite benefits. I think some of the other drawbacks, time zone is something to consider. Um, You can use that to your benefit, especially if they're operations people. I know the commission, I mean, the question was more around sales team. Um, That's something also I would keep in mind. And I mean, this is just kind of like a personal preference, like Making sure that like your sales team has a good understanding of how the operations work before you hire them. And I think that's something yes. that's often overlooked. They're like, oh, this guy yep. will just start and be good at it. Right. And
0: there's a learning <laughs> curve there to some degree. Yeah, I do want to add in too, um, and this it totally depends on the customer or the situation, but if there's a big language barrier based on the location of where your folks are working, it can cause headaches with your with your customers or with the rest of your company, things like that. Um, I will tell you that there's a big benefit to bilingual, especially Spanish, right? Bilingual folks that work in brokerage because you have a lot of um, freight whether it's in um, southern Florida or Texas or the the Mexican border in general, where having someone that can speak Spanish very well will help with the carrier side of it and the customer side of it immensely. Um, The other thing too is if you have someone that has really broken English, you probably don't want that person being customer-facing because that language barrier could cause issues. Now, if they're in your back office doing administrative tasks, it doesn't really matter because they're never going to be customer-facing.
1: Well, and here's the other thing, right? And it's not about the language barrier. Like we have clients that are overseas. Some of my first clients in the industry were in like Venezuela that worked in the US. I mean, we still have people on there we work with. I don't think it's a language barrier. What I think predominantly you're looking for is getting somebody comfortable in the role of selling because it's literally the same thing we talk about with people in the US, right? Getting them reps and getting them to understand the process. So I think like it's really important that if you're gonna hire anybody in sales that they either go through a training program or I really believe like they should be tracking and tracing and working operationally for at least a few months, like three or four before you ever put them on the phone to sell anybody. One, they need to experience the issues and the problems that they're trying to uncover in a prospecting call and they need to understand the product they're selling, the service of transportation, right? And the best way to understand how it functions and what the needs are in it is to go and purchase those things, right? And that's all you're doing when you're Absolutely. operations Using the company's money to go buy trucks, right?
0: Yep, 100%. All right, our second and last question is, how does freight in and out of Mexico work? Um, so we already talked about import export on a, a higher level. So Mexican freight, I have' had a lot of people that have asked me, you know hey, do we have Mexican carriers or how does this how does this process work? I'll tell you what, Mexico and Canada both operate very differently than the U.S. Um, I always called Canada the wild, wild west until I saw how Mexico worked. That is like the wild, wild, wild west. Um, but so in general, w- with any country, if it's if it's coming into the United States, the shipper is who will prepare the customs documentation. Uh, if it's going out of the United States, right, it's going to be generated by the customer in the U.S. to wherever it's going. Now the actual process of the of freight coming in or out of Mexico is it's gonna get picked up at, we'll, we'll just say Mexico coming to the U.S. It's gonna get picked up in Mexico, brought to the border, go through the customs clearance process. Typically a, a drainage company might move it from a warehouse in Mexico, cross the border, put it in a warehouse in the United States, and then a U.S. carrier can pick it up from that warehouse and um, deliver it. Now, with all those moving parts, that is why I'm a huge fan. I wanted to clear,
1: just, I wanted to reiterate what happens there again, right? So when you are crossing that, whether it's U.S. or Canada, right, like, like when you said the customs clearance, there's usually another party involved, and it is a customs brokerage. Customs broker, yeah, and yep. usually the the shipper will like have one, and it's usually like a freight forwarder because it's international and you need different. That's operations. exactly
0: what I was going to get at. Was the for, the forwarding companies? Yeah. Yep. So, and this is where I'm a huge fan of forwarding companies, right? What they'll do, so freight forwarders have a different authority from the FMCSA than freight brokers. They're very, very similar. The big difference here is that freight forwarders are technically taking possession of the freight, and they typically will have warehouses. So you might have a forwarder that's got warehouses right by the border, and they can store that, freight on their dock. Um, And what they'll do then as well is they will give, so they'll price everything out and give you a massive quote, but they will do the actual hiring of the carriers that bring it on both sides and the customs brokerage process and all of that. So um, I would definitely not recommend getting into trying to do that all yourself if you're not a forwarder, because it's a very extensive process and there's legal requirements that you've got to have. But that's, I mean, that's the nuts and bolts of it. Obviously, Mexico and Canada both physically border the united states so we do have trucks that cross the border and it's a big part of the you know the north american economy overall um but in my opinion and you know it's worth what you pay for it which is nothing but my opinion is that leave it to the experts and that's the freight forwarders well they've also
1: different i mean the uh i think it's department of homeland i don't really remember what it is off the top of my head that governs the like licensing of freight forwarders. It is much different. Same with like NVOCCs, like there's like the legal ability to create bills of lading for products leaving and coming into the country. And that's really heavily regulated. And I remember when we were doing this and I was, I was working on this with some people at one of the larger companies and going through this process is like very extensive. There's a lot more vetting and like, the fines, if you don't do it correctly, are like very, very large. Like if you do this and you do this without the proper authorization, like I remember them being like 10 dollars dollars $20,000, like per instance. Like yep. it's very heavily regulated because if you think about it, like they're basically signing and saying that what is coming into the country is what's coming into the country, right? And just the yep. same way you get on a plane and you have to go through and your bag might get checked, they're doing this with containers and like large amounts of cargo that's why it's so heavily regulated but another point and not only i think should you use them but like they're a lot of my customers like in fact six of the phone calls that we heard during this where my phone was beeping were all freight forwarders and they were all
0: related to this exact issue I was going to say, so it is. It is often um, easier to have a freight forwarder as a customer than to hire them as a carrier. Reason being, right? They're going to want to rely on brokers and asset-based carriers to give them capacity for their freight that they already that they already have from their customers. But if you're trying to go hire them to move a load for your customer they would rather just work with your customer directly. Yeah. And it, it almost causes a um, like a conflict of interest. It in- does.
1: So legally, yeah. actually you are not allowed to charge margin on an international shipment with a freight broker's license. You cannot make money on the overseas piece Um, unless you are a freight forwarder. So I remember we ran into this, I ran into this at TQL, like when my customers needed something shipped overseas, I couldn't make money on it. I literally had to just give all of the business to a freight forwarder that was my customer. And I said, here, you make the money, make it up to me somewhere else. You know, just give me some more business that I can handle. So there are ways to get this done. And even though legally you can't charge a margin on top of it because you're not authorized to send cargo that way, like you can still have a relationship where it's mutually beneficial.
0: Yeah, so I always just try to recommend leave it at a relationship and not a business transaction, right, so have them as a customer all day long, sure, but if you have a customer of yours that needs the, the services of a freight forwarder, just refer them directly yep. to them, right? They'll have their own sales department and account managers that can help them out. You, like, think about it this way, right? like When a, when a big shipper wants a big Rolodex or a big team of brokers and carriers um, for capacity, it's okay for your customer to have uh, forwarders in there as well for their specific needs that require freight forwarder. It does not have to go through you. You do not broker that transaction. Like you said, the profit part on it is where, where the, the legal uh, line in the sand is, so good discussion there. That's a, that's a big, big topic to, um, you know, you could, we could have an entire multiple series of, of episodes on that. So, um, you had a, you had a final thought here on the intermodal side that you wanted to hit on before we wrap it up. So what do you got? So
1: here? it's, it's a question I heard that I, I use a lot. It was, um, I can't remember if it was Peter Thiel or somebody, I listened to an interview and he said, he asks this with um, all of the like, new businesses and like entrepreneurs he works with is, can you do what you're doing at 10 times the scale right now? So basically the systems you're operating, if you push 10 times the amount of loads through your system, what would happen? Would it still be functional? Would it fall apart? Because the real question he asks is, could you do this at a hundred fold? what would happen, right? So, and I know this is really applicable as in freight brokers is, we tend to do things that are the most urgent, not necessarily the most important. Whoever's yelling gets your attention, right? And a lot of times, you're basically just trying to survive the day, right? You're posting loads, you're running this way, you're grabbing this call, it's like the day runs you, right? So when people always ask and they reach out and we get a lot of questions like, how do I grow my business? It's not necessarily just selling more customers, right? It's making sure you can support and sustain the work to get to the next step, right? And this is a great way to just stop and evaluate how you're doing everything. Could you do 10 times the amount of loads? Like if your customer called you and gave you what you're all saying you want, which is 10 times the amount of business, right? What would happen? Could you cover it? Could you do the check calls? Could you get the invoicing done? Could you get back to them? Could you schedule the appointments? Any and all of the above, right? Like what would happen at that point? And I think it's not to point out that you as one human being can't do the work of 10 people. What's important to take away when you ask yourself this is, what are some little things you can do to maybe batch some activities or find some systems that start getting you time back. Because guess what, as time passes, if you're doing the right things, you're gonna eventually get there. And it's much better to solve a problem 10 minutes ahead of time or you know, a year ahead of time than it is once it's arrived, right? If you're doing all the right things and you're prospecting and you're quoting and you're trying to get more business, make sure you what you can handle what you're asking for, right?
0: Yeah, that's why I always say it's a, it's important to make sure your back office and your administrative stuff is uh, is in position before you just blow up. Yeah, so,
1: good point. Everybody though. wants to think whether or not they can. Nobody usually asks whether or not they should. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good stuff. All right, well, cool, man. Good discussion. Any uh, any last minute thoughts whether here? Whether
1: you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right.
0: Until next time. No bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our
1: YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.